0: Welcome back to Not Another Science Podcast. If you haven't heard me on air yet, I'm Lily, the current podcast manager and temporary co-host. I'm here to introduce a very special episode with an honorary guest. Alex and I had the great opportunity to team up this week to chat with, drumroll please, our very own co-host Hannah Muir. Hannah has been the Not Another Science Podcast co-host for the past couple of years, and while we will miss her immensely, we are happy to be sending her off on another, arguably cooler part of her professional life as she begins her PhD candidacy, the National Oceanography Centre at Swansea University. Today we travel across Hannah's timeline to discover how exactly she got to this point in her life, and what is in her future as a PhD student. We were so thrilled to learn a bit more about the deciding factors that led her from starting in chemistry, to meeting her supervisor for her PhD, to working in publishing, and more. We hear about her passion for the ocean, blue carbon, the intricacies of the student experience, and how podcasting fit into a bustling professional career, to name a few. But not to give anything away. We'll start by saying... This podcast is sponsored by Griner Bio 1, supplying laboratory, diagnostic, and medical products to research institutions, higher education, the NHS, and others across the UK. For full details of the full product range, visit www.gbo.com.
1: Why, when you click recording, does it immediately become like more scary? I feel like everyone immediately like, silences and is like, yeah. <laughs> You could just leave, like, save yourself some time. I'll just do the interview. (laughs) It's fine.
2: So, Hannah. So, Hannah, could you ask your first question to yourself, please?
1: (laughs) So, I'm Hannah Muir, and my pronouns are she, her. And at the moment, I am a PhD student at Swansea University and the National Oceanography Centre in Southampton, Uh, but that is not what I've been doing forever. That is something I've been doing for the past two months, and... I was going to say prior to that, I did this, 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 this and this and this, but I'm going to, we'll get on to that. So I won't say those things now.
2: So was the master's how you found out or got in touch with your current supervisor? My master's was
1: at Harriet Watt University uh, in Edinburgh, but actually I they have a couple of campuses around the world and the campus that I was uh, supposed to be based on, in was Orkney. So they have an Orkney campus up in the north of, well, one of the Scottish islands in the north. And I spent a couple of months there. But obviously with COVID and everything, the world was shutting down as soon as I started that degree in 2020. So I started in 2020. I'm completely lost with years. So I started that in September 2020. And I moved to Orkney for a couple of months there. And that was primarily where I was supposed to be based. And then the UK started shutting down again around about December time. So I moved back and I spent the rest of my time doing the the master's program remotely from Edinburgh, uh, which is where I live now during that master's it was kind of two semesters of learning about the ocean but kind of one side of it was the sciencey side of it and then the other side was the more anthropogenic like human where the human and the ocean meet and how human beings use the ocean so there was those two kind of aspects of it which was really really interesting and then in the final semester the third semester which runs through the summer we had to carry out just a research project so no more classes to take you've learned everything you need to know you've learned all the skills you need to know and now you need to apply them to a topic you find interesting and so the topic that I chose and find interesting is uh, a field I guess the field is called blue carbon but I'll get on to what that actually means in a second so that's the field that I chose to study was this field called blue carbon and my supervisor uh, in Orkney was had just commissioned a report for the Scottish government studying this specific field because the government was interested in knowing more about this topic in Scotland. And so I paired up with her. And then in order to actually do the physical analysis of that research, we paired up with the National Oceanography Centre in Southampton. And that is where I met my supervisor for my PhD. So... It kind of organically came out of that. I didn't mean to. I didn't know I was going to be able to study. You didn't mean to do a PhD. I didn't mean to do a PhD. Oh, oh my goodness. I've actually, yeah, no, I I did want to do a PhD. Um, Well, no, I swayed between should I, should I not. And I did want to. And I applied for a different one. And my heart just wasn't in it because I knew that this one, uh, this project I was doing in summer was where my heart was. So I didn't think I was going to get a PhD because I'd said no to one and then was like, well, you know, maybe I won't get to do one in the end. Uh, But never mind, I'll do this really cool master's project. So it was by sheer luck that I met my supervisor down in National Oceanography Centre because it just so happened she was looking for a student at exactly the same time that I was like, oh, well, maybe it's not going to happen. So that was a bit of timing and luck involved in that one. But yeah. The field that I study in, the field that I'm interested in, that I s- I'm now doing my PhD in, as I mentioned, is called blue carbon. And blue carbon is just this term that, like a lot of science, we need to translate it to policymakers. We need to translate it to economists. We need to translate it to other people who aren't necessarily physical scientists. And so we come up with all these catchy phrases that we can use to try and make it bite-sized and and that's kind of an umbrella term for something that's much more scientific so blue carbon is just kind of an overarching umbrella term for a specific field that I study so blue essentially I think it has roots maybe not meaning the ocean also I might be wrong in saying that but essentially blue means the ocean or like the marine environment because for all intents and purposes the sea is blue in our minds so that's where the blue comes from and if you had an equivalent on land you'd probably call it green carbon I don't know if that's a thing but you'd probably call it green carbon so that's where the blue aspect comes from and then carbon comes from literally as it says like it's the element carbon and where this is within the marine environment but the phrase blue carbon itself is quite a new phrase. So it was coined in, I think, t- 2009. And it essentially is supposed to relate to the carbon that's stored within living, within the ocean, but specifically within the living aspects of the ocean. So like the uh, sea life and also the habitats and the ecosystems that are within the ocean as a whole. But when we actually think about it in terms of government or economics or whatever it kind of has this extra step which is more the carbon that's stored within the but you can take an extra step and say that it's the carbon that's stored within like the species and habitats that we can manage and then you can take it an extra step and you can refer to three key habitats that actually take up or we think take up much more carbon than all the other Kind of habitats in the ocean. So there's all these different levels. I'll, I'll go into what those three habitats are, but there's all these different levels of what the definition actually is. And so for me, the definition of blue carbon is the carbon that is stored within the habitats that are within the ocean, and we can manage them to increase or promote carbon uptake or maintain it so that it doesn't get destroyed and released back into the ocean. So it has a kind of a human, not human centric, but like a human aspect to it of like the marine management as well as the carbon that's in the ocean. So I don't know if that's a good definition. It's actually quite, it's quite a confusing term. But what I was saying about the three main habitats. So this research that's been done is being done globally. It's quite an interesting field and it's kind of ramping up since it was coined in 2009. The research really has ramped up and people are a lot more interested in this now because there is the climate change aspect which obviously is a big thing that we need to tackle and so when people realized oh the ocean is actually a big part of the climate this was one of the fields that became quite of interest and the reason that is is because there's these three main habitats that exist around the earth that are really good at taking up carbon from the atmosphere and storing it within the sediment so for long periods of time so the carbon it's kind of like a drawdown mechanism of carbon into the ocean and storing it which is obviously good because it takes carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere and stores them for long for long periods of time and so these three habitats are mangroves which we do not have in the uk but you have in a lot of the parts of kind of the tropical parts of the world you've got sea grasses and we do have those in the uk and we've got salt marsh so we have salt marshes in the uk as well and so they're the three key blue carbon habitats around the world and there yeah a lot of research has been done kind of in tropical areas and there's more research being done now in temperate areas where we are in the uk and trying to understand How much carbon is taken up, how much carbon is stored, and then the dynamics of that whole system, because like everything in nature, nature is really complex and not as simple as we try and break it down to be. So that's a big there's lots of questions around where's the carbon coming from? How is it being stored? How does climate change impact that storage? Like there's a lot of interesting questions there. So yeah, there's loads of different definitions for what blue carbon is, but primarily it's these kind of habitats that take down and store carbon within the sediments and how we can manage them effectively is the big question.
0: I think that's super interesting because you explained it so much better than anybody at COP26 did. Like, I attended, I think, two mangrove talks and they were all about blue carbon. And I was like, is this a company name? Is it like, a environmental concept that I didn't learn in my undergrad what is blue carbon and I think that's kind of the great thing that you explained it
1: well yeah I think I think there's a need for like defining it which is why I've gone straight into the definition of it is because I asked a friend this like what do you think blue carbon is because they were obviously asking about my PhD and I like to ask people if I said this do you understand what it means and they were like well I guess you've got like you get like green hydrogen and brown hydrogen and blue hydrogen so i guess it's a similar thing to like that so maybe like energy storage and i was like no not at all like not even (laughs) slightly because no one defines it and there no one if you like i mean it's such a vague term blue carbon it's really vague it could mean Mm. so many different things and so i think it's really important to define phrases like this and On a similar note, I mean, in our field, in in the marine science field and in the environmental field in general, you've got phrases like ecosystem services and nature-based solutions. Nature-based solutions is probably something a lot of people have heard of. I've just helped the Scottish government write a blue economy vision, but what is the (laughs) blue economy? Like, There are all these phrases that we use and we kind of throw around, and I don't actually know if people within... industries or the organizations themselves truly have a joined up understanding of what these phrases are so I think it's important that we define them and I think it's important that we share definitions and keep discussing the definitions so that we're all on the
2: same page essentially and so what what practically are you doing in your PhD because you know you said you're already uh, starting to put things together working out what you're practically doing what what is this that you're practically collecting
1: there are a few aspects of my PhD We need to analyze the sediments so we need to collect sediments and then we need to analyze the spatial distribution of habitats so we need to somehow figure out where they are and where they cover in the seabed so there's these two aspects the reason we need to collect sediments is because A lot of the carbon that is stored within the marine environment is stored within sediments. Even if you think about the habitats I've spoken about, like the seagrass and the mangroves and the salt marshes, ultimately what's happening is the biological material is uh, photosynthesizing, taking up carbon from the atmosphere or the ocean if it's buried below the water. It takes up the carbon and then it puts it through its root systems and through its rhizomes and then it buries it in the sediment so even within these kind of vegetated habitats you still want to look at the sediment because that's where most of the carbon is going and then taking that a step further even if you have areas that don't have vegetation on them so like imagine just like a muddy bottom of a seabed deep down in the ocean there's still going to be carbon that's falling from through the water column from the surface that's been photosynthesized and drawn that carbon up. There's carbon from like, you know, the decay of fish matter and stuff like dying organisms. There's this plant material that comes from the coast and gets washed out to sea. There's macroalgae, so that's like kelp and seaweeds and stuff that get washed out. So still the sediment itself acts as this big sink for carbon. And so what we're interested in looking at is the sediment. So the way that we do that is we basically take our glorified pipe and we push that into the sediment. And then we pull that up, we cap it, and then we take that to the National Oceanography Centre or any other analysis facility specifically. We're going to be doing it at National Oceanography Centre. And then we split this, what we call a sediment core. So it's like, imagine if you cored an apple, you you get that like nice tube of an apple out the middle. It's a similar thing. We've we've cored the sediment and then uh, we get what we call a core we slice that core in half. And then it's really interesting, you can see as you go down the core from the surface down deeper and deeper into the sediment, you see these different bands of colour of sediment. And that can be because the mineral content is different. Specifically for us, what's interesting is a lot of the time, darker sediments have much more organic content. So that's the carbon rich sediments. And this can tell you a bit about what's been happening over time with the different layers of sediments, but specifically for us, the different carbon that's within those layers over time. We can then take subsamples through, I guess you'd call it a depth profile from the surface to the deeper sediments. That's obviously newer sediments on top, older sediments on the bottom. You take samples as you go down these layers, and then we can use different analytical techniques to essentially figure out how much inorganic carbon's there, how much organic carbon's there, and we can date it. So we can date from top to bottom of the core and then figure out how old that carbon is and how much is sequestered over time Uh, because we can get a rate. If we have a time series down the depth, we can get this rate of how much has been taken up over time. This just essentially helps us to understand how much is taken on average, over time, we can't really do it that precisely. So, on average, over time, how much is taken up? How much is stored there right now? And so, for example, if you were trying to protect the seabed, if someone was wanting to go and dig it up, like troll it, or if you wanted to dredge the seabed, you could say, "Well, X amount of carbon is stored there, and that's a really big hotspot of carbon. We probably shouldn't dredge in that specific location." That's the kind of impact that you could have on that but yeah so so that's the sediment side and then I guess the other side of what I do also it's all linked is a more observational side of research which would be when we talk about the habitats you can do this for the entire seabed but specifically we're going to be looking um, in my first year at the coastal habitats around the Isle of Man and we want to look at them from above Just to try and see where they are and how far they cover and their distribution around the island. So, the key habitats I spoke about before, seagrass and salt marsh, they exist on the Isle of Man along with these massive kelp beds. Like, kelp is all over the island, which I mean, anyone who's a blue carbon scientist knows that's actually quite a controversial topic as to whether kelp counts as blue carbon or not. But for all intents and purposes, I'm going to say at the moment, yes, it is a source of blue carbon. And so, yeah, all are my own <laughs> and hopefully the views of everyone else. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, so we basically want to see where are these different habitats around the coastline and how do they change and how are they distributed and how much area do they cover? And so we're going to be using a drone to take pictures from the air around the coastline of the island and then we stitch these pictures together and make this big, what's called an orthomosaic. So we get like a big image essentially from a load of different smaller images that are all what it's called geolocated. So they're like precisely located above the Earth's surface. So you can get like a map that's that you could impose on the Earth. You know where these images have been taken. By looking at the images, you can say, oh, well, there's a big kelp bed there and there's seagrass there and there's a bit of salt, salt marsh there. And when you combine that with the carbon values you've taken, you can essentially scale it up and say, well, we have X amount of carbon in a salt marsh on this island. And so we know that the salt marsh covers this amount of area. Therefore, scaling that all up, we know that we've got X amount of carbon in that habitat on the island. By pairing these two techniques together, you can scale up, essentially. You can get an estimate of how much carbon you have in different parts of the island.
0: So before all that, you studied chemistry for your undergraduate degree. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how your motivations may have changed over time?
1: I took a normal chemistry degree but it was a five-year integrated master's degree and so in Scotland like a typical degree would be four years and then you would add this extra year on to give a fifth year which would be this master's but it's not like a true master's where you would you know graduate and then take a master's degree you kind of do it all in one go as a continuum of your undergrad so that's how my degree was and I did that at Edinburgh University and so the first three years were basically just all of chemistry understand everything there is to do so you've got physical organic and inorganic chemistry that's kind of the divisions that people break down chemistry into physicals a lot of the time more in my opinion more like maths heavy and more you know that's that's literally how i remember it It was just like that was the one that involved maths and equations and stuff that i found quite challenging but interesting Then you've got organic chemistry, which I will skim over because I hated organic chemistry with a passion. And and I'll explain why, uh, probably by getting on to what I ended up uh, finding interesting. But I find organic chemistry was really chaotic. Like there was a lot of exceptions to rules in organic chemistry where you know, you have a reaction that goes, but sometimes it doesn't go and sometimes it doesn't work. And I never got my head around all of why that was. I did enough to pass the exams, but I would stay clear of organic. And then there's inorganic chemistry, which I found very interesting. Uh, So that's essentially the side that I ended up specializing in. And that's less about crazy complex molecules, which to me is what organic chemistry is, and less about mathematical understanding of chemistry, which was physical chemistry, and more about somewhere kind of in between. So things felt a bit more structured in inorganic chemistry, you've got, well, what I found interesting was crystallography. So that's very structured. And that's basically how you get atoms within within a compound how do you get atoms to go into very specific locations and you can predict where they're going to go and you can analyze exactly their locations and uh, build up a much more logical pattern but instead of being embedded in maths the side that I found interesting within inorganic chemistry was like the conceptual aspect so a lot of it felt like you very much had to think about how that was going to look and the shape of it and I don't know. This is just my understanding of chemistry. I'm sure everyone has a completely different understanding. But for me, inorganic chemistry made much more sense. Yeah, it's much more, to me, that was always the more visual one. I mean, organic chemistry is also visual. But to me, it's like if you took a pencil and just like squiggled all over a page, that's organic chemistry in my brain physical chemistry is like a bunch of numbers in in rows and then inorganics just like loads of pretty pictures this is how my brain sees it and so that's why i find it really interesting (laughs) i like this is probably a common theme you'll probably be garnering but i really like things that can be distilled to pretty pictures and hence the mapping side of what i do now but also yeah what i ended up liking in chemistry so so, yeah, I ended up specializing in what's called materials chemistry. That's what I did my final year degree in. And materials chemistry was looking at how we analyze materials and also kind of the makeup of materials and how they're structured and the function that we can get from them. I never quite found where I fitted in that because I think a lot of the degree that I took was focused towards making new things so like chemistry in order to make pharmaceuticals or chemistry in order to make compounds that we can use to you know uh, absorb carbon dioxide from the air like something that's similar to what I do now but it was very synthetic and very like man-made That's how it felt like my degree went, whereas I've also always been really interested in nature and like, what can we learn from nature? And there is a field called like bio-inspired materials. We interviewed Ruby Marshall earlier as well, who was looking at bio-inspired materials. And so that's something that I find really interesting as well, is more like how you can take inspiration from nature. And I think if I'd realized that earlier in my degree or like in the final year of my degree, that that was where I was interested, I think I may have stayed within the field but at the time I didn't really understand where I fitted in or whatever so I really enjoyed the degree I really enjoyed for the first time I think in the final year of my degree everything came together it stopped being the split you know inorganic physical and organic and it became much more gelled together and I think that just happens to people as they move through a degree So yeah, it became much more cohesive in my mind. I realized that I could start challenging things more than the lecturers were teaching. And like, that was just a really cool thing to be able to finally do within the field. But then I got to the end and all of my friends were applying for uh, PhDs and everyone was applying for, you know, they had their, either knew they didn't want to be in academia. So they had gone down the route of maybe going into like patent law or pharmaceuticals companies or these kind of industries that have quite a good direct link to chemistry and then there was other people who were going down the research route who were applying for PhDs but I came out and was like I don't know that was really interesting and cool but I don't know what to do with that degree because it was really synthetic and really lab-based and I did not enjoy lab work so I was like oh I don't really know how to to use this degree but I took a bit of time out for a few months and I just got a summer job helping, actually helping the department do, apply for inequality and diversity, the Athena Swan Award, helping write that award for them. And I discovered through my degree, especially the latter t- years of my degree, I discovered I really liked writing. So I'd been writing for a science blog in my final year and I was writing the Athena Swan Award over summer. And so when I came to apply for jobs in the summer thinking, what will I do? I literally was like, well, maybe... I can just keep reading about chemistry and learning about chemistry in the way that I like, but I don't actually have to do chemistry anymore. Maybe I can just learn about it and read about it and write about it. Maybe that's something I can do. And so I ended up finding a job that was in a publishing company. They were basically wanting someone who would read their chemistry articles all day and you know, I like structured things, so who would make them structured and sound nice and uh, all of that. And then they also wanted someone who would write for the blog and stuff. So for me, I at least found application for chemistry, but it was not exactly the same as what everyone else was doing, I would say. I think I was one of only a few people who found, found that route.
0: So you followed a different path to others that you knew. What have you learned from that?
1: one of the things that I've taken away from all the different experiences were that you can be loads of different things and have loads of different interests and you can use them all either at once or at different parts of your life and that is like totally okay because I think the school system for me I loved pretty much anything science and anything arts and anything that had a crossover between those two realms and you were forced to choose a few subjects and obviously that makes sense. You couldn't study everything. So you were forced to choose a few subjects. And I remember finding that really frustrating when I was younger because I wanted to take loads of things and I was being told I had to narrow them down. And so I think the school system kind of pushes you into thinking you have to find yourself and fit yourself into a box of well what is it out of all these things what do you like the most and what do you feel like you fit best in and I remember when I came to apply for university I was told like well what subjects do you like and I was like well I like geography art and chemistry and now looking at where I'm at now I I use all of them all the time every day so it makes sense that That's what I liked when I was younger and I do now. But I remember at that point being told, which one do you want to do? And so I picked chemistry, but I almost felt like I'd thrown away geography and art in the process because I no longer was able to do those subjects. And so, you know, I, I chose chemistry. One of the experiences I've had since leaving academia, which was felt for me, going through it when I was younger that it was very much trying to narrow you down as much as possible into one specific field having not gone that route and having branched out into loads of different careers I think I've realized oh you can build really cool career or a really you know gather loads of really cool skill sets by drawing upon all the things you're interested in and you don't have to be fit fit into a box I mean it, it makes it really hard to answer questions like on the podcast of like who are you <laughs> what do you do, because then you don't know but you know, to make an interesting life, if that's kind of how you want to live it, and that's the kind of person you are, then I think that's a lesson I've definitely learned. And it's taken time, because I think that a lot of people I know haven't gone down that route, and they're quite happy with that. And so I think that it's You meet these people as you go along in life that haven't lived the kind of typical structured way that you were maybe raised in so I was raised in a very structured environment where my parents had done one career forever and my friends all kind of seemed to have that vision as well and the school system taught you that that's how you were supposed to go and so for me I didn't really fit into that system and so I think On the one hand, I feel like I've had this really chaotic, weird career that doesn't make sense. And then on the other hand, as I get older, I'm realizing, actually, it's just a different type. People are really intrigued when I apply for jobs. People are like, wow, there's like all these random skill sets you have and we could really do with having those. And so it's actually become this superpower when I come to try and apply for different jobs. But no one tells you that. You you feel for a long time that you're a failure because you've not found what it is that you want to be doing. So that's that's what I've learned from doing loads of different careers, I think, is just like gain some confidence and feeling like, no, this is cool. I can still be the person who has a million interests and do them all at once.
2: And that is okay. Obviously, we've spoken like before you started on the podcast, uh, we're having a lovely chat in the park and you were telling me how your job in publishing went from one thing to being something quite different as well. So it's like those unexpected things, but it felt to me like that that kind of fed into podcasting and what you're doing now. And you haven't disregarded any of those skills and that people don't have to disregard them just because they end up doing something totally different I really I really love that message could you, could you tell us how your job in publishing changed over time
1: yeah definitely so um as I mentioned I didn't know what to do after chemistry and I decided to apply for jobs that allowed me to continue to learn about chemistry but not necessarily doing practical hands-on chemistry and one of the fields that I would recommend to anyone who's in the same position and thinks like I don't want to practically use this degree in like a lab or something but I would like to continue learning about it would be publishing is kind of good for that because you can I'm looking at my mic as though people are there I'm like anyway um (laughs) so yeah I would definitely recommend publishing because so I worked with Wiley who some people might have heard of they're kind of one of the big publishing companies like Springer Nature and Elsevier and Wiley's one of the big ones as well especially in academic publishing and so I went to work with Wiley in Germany which is where historically their chemistry publishing house was based and so that's where it remained it's an it's an international I think they're based in America but it's actually like an international publishing company so their chemistry department was in Germany and I went into the post-acceptance editing team there. So you get pre-acceptance and post-acceptance in publishing. And pre-acceptance is the people who decide what articles get published and not. And so they deal a lot with the peer review process. They deal a lot with speaking to academics, finding out if someone will help review a paper and deciding if the science is is right and good and should be published and whether it aligns with the journal that they're working in. So that's what a pre pre acceptance editor would do. And then you've got what I did, which was the post acceptance editor team. So Once a journal article has been accepted for publication, then it goes through this process of post acceptance editors basically trying to tidy up the article, trying to make the, we got a lot of international people who publish who don't necessarily throughout the entire article structure sentences as a native English speaker speaker would structure them. So we would go through and make sure that the. English was up to scratch for um, native speakers. And a big part of that was also formatting. So we would try and get the article formatted in the style of the journal, make sure that all the components that you need to have are there. So has it got an acknowledgement section? Are the references formatted correctly? Like really just that kind of stuff, to be honest. In my role, I just did like so much of this every day. I was just like editing, I don't know, 20 journal articles a day. You would just be trying to get through them and making them all sound and look good and stuff. So that was that aspect of the role. But during my undergraduate degree, I'd spent a year, a year abroad at a university in America. So I went to the University of Chicago and they had this really good film editing club out there. And I just fell into with the film editing club and was like, this is really cool. The people are really nice. I'm just going to learn how to make films because that's something I don't know how to do. Uh, and it's creative and it looks fun. So I joined this club and without really realizing it, I started developing the skills needed to make videos just for fun. And so, I I mean, I made a video about the international students that were at the university and we did little interviews and I pieced it all together and picked music and stuff. So totally for fun, totally just because it was something I wanted to learn. And it just so happened that the job I ended up getting in publishing, they were looking to start up a product that's called video abstracts. So, I mean, if you think of a journal article, you have an abstract, which is a short summary of a paper. And so instead of just having that in written form, we would try and replicate uh, an abstract, but we would make a video out of it, which would include things like interviews with the researchers themselves. It could include animations of what they're trying to convey, the message that they're trying to convey, and maybe show some of their key graphs uh, so that people can... Have a voiceover talking through the graph, so they wanted to start up this product, and it just so happened that I somehow had developed video editing skills along the way, and uh, they really wanted those skills. So again, a shout out, like embrace all the skill sets you have, and don't shy away because it doesn't fit the mold of what you think you're going to be doing or need to do. Like all the skill sets are welcome, it seems, in when you actually go to get a job. So yeah, they wanted someone who could do videos, and so I was very quickly transitioned from an editor. I did that role for a year. And then I fully transitioned out of that role. But during that time, I was in a kind of half and half job where I was an editor half of the time and a video producer half of the time. I then transitioned out of that after the year to full time video production. And then we started to scale up that process. I had this amazing colleague, Jodie. Shout out to Jodie. And the two of us basically just made these videos uh, side by side. And Jodie was also very experienced in doing social media and website. Uh, stuff and writing blogs for the web so I got pulled into that side of things as well and then basically ended up running this media team with Jody for a while a small media team like not not too many people maybe five of us part-time people being pulled in part-time to work on it and we were writing blog articles for the website which would take journal articles that we had selected ourselves and we thought were really cool and were exploring really cool topics we would write a summary of that and put that on the website we did the videos, obviously, and we would create like Twitter posts and do social media. So a role that started off as being purely publishing kind of turned into just being like hands-on media, still science, still science a little bit. Like when I would write these articles, I always picked things that inspired me, which just happened to be, as I explained, like bio-inspired design. So like every article I wrote about was like, this raincoat that generates electricity from rainwater and then like uh you know a steam a steaming machine made of mushrooms and like all these random nature linked, really cool stuff um so yeah there's a lot of really cool like materials research being published that obviously is quite far away from application but the concept is there and people are doing really cool very small level microscopic versions of something that one day might be really impactful and really cool and so we would write about these things in a a wider context and yeah so basically that's where my role evolved to uh and I ended up running this little team with my friend Jody (laughs) and not not being an editor at all anymore suddenly a content producer and media manager and whatnot so your career can take a very strange turn without it intentionally being so but I think that's where like following following what you're interested in and using the skills you have if you want to use them. It's like, don't shy away from it. I think it can lead to really cool, cool things. Speaking of, how did
0: you get involved with USI? Was it linked to academic publishing, like starting off in the science communication engagement side of media? Did you end up finding this podcast? What's your story for how you got here? I've never asked this before for you. Like you guys sat on a bench together, (laughs) like a real bench. I know. Wow. I mean, it was still during lockdown. So we sat
1: on a bench, probably distanced in a park, breathing air and (laughs) far away from each other, eating grapes. Yeah. I guess there's two parts of this story. I think one of them is that Obviously, I like science communication, so I've done a lot of blog writing, I've done the video production side of things, I've done social media posts, so these are all different components that form a science communication type of career, but I had never done podcasting, so I'd done the visual side of things, I'd done like the written side of things, but never the audio aspect. And so it was always something in the back of my mind that was like, oh, that's kind of the missing link to having like a sci-com kind of background. When it was COVID, I started listening to a lot more podcasts because I live alone. And so I had a lot of time on my own. And one of the ways to keep myself uh, happy at the start of lockdown and feeling like I had a social life and was engaged with other human beings was I got completely obsessed with science podcasts, like obsessed. I think I was listening to maybe two or three a day. I loved them so much. They they kept me company. Shout out to Ali Ward's ologies for anyone who wants like a science podcast because I just that was that was amazing uh, and it's still ongoing that podcast is amazing and as well I think there was one that I listened to that I no longer listen to but it was BBC Life Scientific with Jim Al-Khalili and if you could find those legacy podcasts I'm not sure if they go on anymore but again really good podcast so I basically got completely immersed in those and then was on Twitter scrolling one day with all that free time I now had I saw that uh professor that studies oceanography or marine I think marine biology maybe at Edinburgh University I had started getting into the oceans at that point and so I uh, was following him on Twitter and he posted because he's at Edinburgh Uni just having this post of like you saw I was looking for uh, new members to join the team and one of them was a podcast co-host and so I like I don't even know what came over me I was doing this on my sofa and usually I'm a thinker so I'm like okay I'll think about that but I was like I've got to apply I've got to apply so I just applied there and then immediately, as soon as I saw the post, like answered all the questions they were asking for the application, just answered them all. And then went on my little lunchtime walk and was like, great, cool. That's that then. Uh, I've always wanted to do this and I'm obsessed with podcasts right now. So it seemed like a very nice, natural moment to just see that Twitter post and very fitting, totally by an accident. I wasn't looking for it, but I'd always had in my mind I would like to do podcasts. So it seemed like a really good opportunity to get get another skill set, one of many random skill sets, podcasting.
2: <laughs> and have you had a favourite episode or favourite memory from your time on the podcast?
1: I think... It's hard to say, because I think every single one of them has been totally different than I would have imagined going into it. Like, I think we've always had an idea of who the guests are and the cool stuff that they're doing. We obviously pick them because we're genuinely interested in what they do. And then when we speak to people, I just think it's always like kind of breathtaking how much people have done and how much they're passionate about what they do and like how much knowledge they have about topics that I usually don't have any idea about. Probably our first ever episode when we thought that uh, we were going to be in, interviewing a really cool molecular gastronomist who like would teach us all about the chemistry of how food works and like how to blow up things and you know dry ice and create foams and like all these cool things and we reached out to them this was Stan Blackley first episode that we uh, launched I think in this round of podcasts and um very very interesting episode but found out that that is not at all what gastronomy is we had completely muddled it up We'd reached out to him completely obliviously. He then put us in our place and told us, you know, I think you might have got the wrong end of the stick here. Um, But we interviewed him anyway and learned like so much more than I ever would have imagined. So, so, so much more. So about food's role in society and the actual. it was more of a social science podcast episode, but it was really, really interesting. So I think that has to be my favourite memory of the naivety of going into a podcast for the first time and having no idea what we were... (laughs) What we were getting into, and but we've come a long way. We now know the people we're interviewing and (laughs) what they study and whatnot. So
0: (laughs) we keep it signed.
1: Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) So yeah, I think that's a good memory. But yeah, no, the whole thing—it's been really good.
0: Can I just say that we have great co-hosts here? Many thanks to Hannah for her endless supply of great questions and contagious laughter as she was a co-host with Not Another Science Podcast. I'm so grateful to be able to work with them both, and on behalf of the entire team, wish Hannah all the best on the next leg of her journey. We know you'll do amazing, and who knows, maybe this won't be the last time we hear from you. This podcast is brought to you by the Edinburgh University Science Media. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out about the science being done in our very own backyard here at the university and beyond by staff and students. If you have any feedback for us, or if you'd like to get in touch with a question or suggestion, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, or at our Twitter, at EUSCI. That's at E-U-S-C-I. You can also drop us an email at usai.podcast.gmail.com and you can find the show notes and the latest issue of the magazine at usi.org.uk. This episode was hosted by Alex Bailey and me, Lily Parati. The podcast logo was designed by Usi chief editor, Apple Chu, and the awesome podcast episode art was designed by Heather Jones, our social media and marketing genius. The intro music is an edited version of Funkarama by Kevin MacLeod, and the outro music is an edited version of Footballs in Space by Professor Colin Campbell. Thank you for listening, and until next time, just like Hannah, we invite you to always keep it science.